Okay, cool. We've got it working. So, yeah. So, Eric Boomer and I are doing this uh, three month expedition to go around Ellesmere Island in the high Arctic. And what we have to do is to do 15 nautical miles, about half a marathon a day, every day for 100 days, in a very adverse environment, carrying all of our own gear, or we're going to die. So that's the setup, that's the expedition. So for the first month and a half, we're doing pretty well. We're maintaining our average. Of course, our bodies are breaking down, we're getting tired, we're getting hungry, but we're, we're hanging in there, and it looks like we're doing pretty well. So now it's early July, we started in May sometime, and we're on the northeast corner of the island, which we knew was going to be the crux, because you have this situation of moving ice, ice, ocean, a very dynamic situation. You have the whole North Pole ice pack to the north of you, and it's being moved southward by currents and winds into a constriction that's about 20 kilometers wide between Ellesmere and Greenland. So you have a whole ocean full of ice, big chunks of ice, huge chunks of ice, moving into this tiny constriction, and all hell breaks loose. <laughs> the ice is crashing around, and we need a little window here where everything relaxes. And so we go move along, and we're, we're now not making 15 miles a day, but oh, less than half, five or six, but we're still moving. And then we get into this constriction where there's vertical cliffs lining the shore. So if we get in there and the ice moves in on us, we're dead. There's no way out. We're dead, dead, dead. And basically, we waited there for 17 days for a moment to go. Now, we didn't set this up. It wasn't like some guru said, wait for 17 days and um, think about your navel, and then that'll prepare your mind. The environment enforced that. And when I look at it, yeah, were we bored sometimes? Of course. Were we anxious sometimes? Of course. Were we bummed out sometimes? Of course. But a lot of that 17 days, we sat behind a rock and watched the ice. And this is what I'm saying where the, the environment is a sponge. It pulls out all the junk. And this enforced waiting is slowly cleaning you, whether you want it or not. And so we're sitting there for 17 days, we're low on food, and during that 17 days we're counting the food. We go, okay, now 17 days is 17 times 15 miles that we haven't traveled, that we're going to have to make up sometime. So we're going, oh man, you know, okay, okay, okay. But everything in that time, we're getting emotionally cleaned out. And like I say, we didn't know it, but now I see it. I see what happened. And then in the, we wake up one morning, and the ice, there's a little bit of a wind from the southwest, and it's pushed the ice a little bit offshore towards Greenland. And we say, we got to go. 
So we jump in our kayaks and we start paddling and the wind relaxes and the ice comes screeching back in. And it's crashing and falling and we're jumping around moving our kayaks and we go, oh, this is way too scary. And we go back and we sit on the beach. And then about five o'clock in the afternoon, the ice relaxes and we get back in the boats. Same thing. And then at nine o'clock, so now we've been going hard in terrifying situations, as hard as you can go for 12 hours. And now the ice relaxes again and we look at each other and we say, this is the real thing. We're going. And it's nine o'clock at night. Of course, we have 24 hour daylight, but we've been full tilt boogie, full activity for 12 hours. And now is our moment that we have five hours of sprint to get through this dangerous situation. And to my dying day, I will always remember those five hours. Because all of the things, I didn't, like you say, I hadn't heard the term flow or that there was a flow community before. But everything washed away. Everything was gone. Your sense of self was gone. Your sense of fear was gone. If we're wrong, we're committing now. If we're wrong, we're dead. And that didn't matter anymore. And the ocean was dead, flat, mirror, calm. And the lighting was this ethereal sunset, sunrise, you know, eight-hour sunset, sunrise, northern lighting. And the ducks were skimming across the water, and we were paddling with the ducks. And so, to me, I have never been in a state of such pure ecstasy for so long, for five hours. And you're sprinting for your life, and, you know, you've been going now for 12 plus 5, 17 hard hours of, of full exertion. And the fatigue is gone. And so that, to me, is the flow state. No fear, no t fatigue, no self. Awareness in action and the beauty of the environment. So as if I become a flow instructor, if my book is, in fact, a book about flow, it's about... A, recognizing that this state is exists, and B, finding ways to approach it without, as one of my friends says, hitting your head, self on the head with a heavy hammer. Since you can't find flow by just beating yourself with a heavy hammer like you did, you have to find it in other ways. But I think the first step is realizing that it exists and what it is, and then approaching it. What a, a great story, great story. So you, so in that example, there was a lot of kind of external pressures that almost forced you into it from the ice, the severity, the danger, the the um, the constant physical um, fatigue, if you like. Um, are there, you know, and you said kind of psychologically, you're you you lost yourself, you lost your fear, you lost your a normal sense of, I guess, how you operate, and you found that space within of where tiredness went away and, and everything seemed incredible and fantastic. But, what happened psychologically just before 
that five hours of when you felt you were in flow. You know, I'm imagining there was a bit of struggle going on or other aspects that you were focused on. What, um, anything come to mind? Well, the struggle dissipated gradually over those 17 days. At first, you, you go and, and you can't paddle anymore. There's no way you can move. And you're banging your head against it. Ah, we gotta go, we gotta go. Ah. And then you can't maintain it for 17 days. So gradually we found ourselves spending more and more time just sitting and watching the ice. And not, and you know, there was this moment, oh my God, we're going to die, or we're going to freeze to death, or we're going to starve to death. And, and gradually that became less important. Not that we weren't trying as hard as we could to survive, but the consequences became less important. And Boomer, my partner, who's an amazing character, and you have to talk to him someday, too, because he's, he's just fantastic. We had made this, uh, I know this sounds corny, but it's true. We had made this pact that because of weight restrictions and everything, we were going to bring no reading material, no music, no nothing, no nothing from the outside world, no. But he brought, he ripped out seven pages out of the Tao, Okay. And he fucked them. And we had those seven pages to read over and over again for 17 days. And you'd sit on the rock and you'd growl. And then you'd go out. Oh, oh, and then you'd sit and you'd watch the ice. And then you'd read, you know, the spaces. It's the space between the spokes of the wheel that gives you strength. And then you'd calm down. So that, what I'm trying to say is that there was a gradual diminution, not a sudden moment where you went, bingo. And by the time we actually set out the third time that day, it was already there. And we, we, we got in our kayaks, and neither of us remembers what we said. We were making this life-determining life decision. And neither of us remembers the conversation. We said something like, let's do it, or it's time, or I guess we got to go for it, or something of that nature. And then we just nodded. And we paddled out into this water, and it was total peacefulness, just total. But it wasn't a barrier that it became peaceful in that instant. That peacefulness had been coming for 17 days. And if we hadn't had that 17 days, it would have been a different experience. Yeah, for uh, sure. What about your decision-making? Do you think that changed during those five hours? The decision-making all along, I was 65 and Boomer was 27, so we're a generation apart. And the decision-making all along was a balance between youthful enthusiasm and age and so on and so forth. And looking back at it, that, that balance between the two of us is what made us successful and kept us from dying. 
So the decision-making was the beautiful integration of our personalities and our ages. But once we set out, there was, I can't describe it, an absolute calmness. We weren't going to die, but if we did, that was okay. Mm -hmm. We were, what was I thinking about? I was thinking about making every paddle stroke the most efficient, fastest, paddle stroke possible. And I think another, a, a friend of mine here in Fernie, who's a, um, in, an extreme endurance athlete, I mean big time endurance, he says that you can only, willpower is strong, but it's not very strong. And to do, when the pressure is really down, you have to go beyond willpower. You have to reach a state that's beyond willpower. If you say there's a barrier here, but I'm going to climb over the barrier, then that takes energy away from what you have to do, which is paddle. You're thinking about the barrier. You're thinking, I'm going to be tough it out, and I'm going to get over the barrier. That's okay for a while, but it's not enough in a really intense situation. And so what you have to do is lose the concept of barrier. And what, what, what do you think helped you go past that or you go beyond the barrier? Was it almost like a surrendering or was it a um, just a re-shift of focus? Um, or was it that it just didn't exist anymore? Or I think it's pure unadulterated ecstasy. That there's... And ecstasy, you know, there's two definitions. There's the party drug ecstasy, which is, you know, dance all night, make love till the morning. And that's okay. That's part of it, but it's not all of it. And ecstasy involves total involvement with, uh, if you look at the entomology of the word, <clears throat> there's terror involved, terror behind the ecstasy. And I think, and to repeat myself, these 17 days of watching the ice and then being out in this absolute gorgeous environment and knowing I'm never going to be here again. I'm 65. This is my last expedition of this magnitude. I'm never going to be here again. This is pure ecstasy. And once you approach, once you reach that, then there are no barriers, then there's no consequences. There's just every paddle stroke, it's all awareness and action. And in one of the flow TED Talks that I saw, it said, at a certain intensity, your brain can't do two things at once at a very intense level. So if I'm thinking about who I am and what I am and what's going on and my wife back home and that ham sandwich when I get home, that takes away from action and awareness. And there is an intuitive understanding that we couldn't, we needed all the energy we had. We were down to the wire. We'd been eating poorly. We'd been in the Arctic for a month and a half. We'd been going now for 15 hours. We didn't have enough energy to think about extraneous anything. Mm. 
And that was intuitive. That was understood within the ecstasy. So that kind of energetic alignment where there is no room for wasted thought, wasted energy, you know, wasted scenarios. How, how do you feel people could reach that in not-so-extreme climates? Right. That's the big, that's the big question. Have you sit for five days and meditate? And that's one way to go. And that way works. It just doesn't happen to be my expertise. So what we're doing, we're starting off, we're in a beautiful environment. We're in the tide zone. We're on an island in the Gulf of um, Georgia or north of the Gulf of Georgia between Vancouver Island and the mainland. So we're going to pick a space in the tide zone, that's our space. And this, because it's a tidal zone, it's always changing. It's The tide is coming in and coming out, the weather, and so on and so forth. So that's our space that we want to align ourselves with, this complex, ever-changing, ever-beautiful environment. We're going to spend a good part of the five days right in this one space, watching the tide come in and go out and in and go out in different levels of um, uh, life that occur at different levels in the tide zone and so forth. So then we develop these exercises that try to take us into the flow state. And they involve going out Spending time, we have the group here, we have a group together, and then we disperse into your own space. So you go off on your own, and um, part of it is like finding things in nature that represent your happiness, or finding things in nature that represent your tribulations, or find things in nature that represent yourself. And then we take them back to the group space. And we don't talk about them. I'm not a psychologist, and I don't want to hear people's troubles. I really don't. I'm not good at it. Um, so you have this thing that represents your happiness, and we give it up to the group, and we make kind of an altar. We make kind of a, a central piece of art that we can build. We can build it in the tide zone at low tides so it'll get wiped out. We can build it at high tides so it'll stay. And then, and this is now uh, to get yourself away, out of yourself, remove yourself. And then, and this is why I brought Jody in, because one way to get the ecstatic state is do music and dance. And so I brought in a professional dancer and a dance choreographer. And now we're going to dance. And we're going to, the idea is get rid of yourself enter the ecstatic state. And we're going to do that by developing this dance, allow nature to sponge out all the monkey business. And that's that's my technique at the moment. That's what where I'm going right now. Hmm. So taking people out of their ready-known context, putting them in a dancing scenario so they can... They can reopen their senses, if you like, reopen their minds, recalibrate, and um, and get out of themselves. Yeah, that's exactly what we're trying to do. Exactly. Great. 
Well done. And then you do like a little performance at the end of the day. Um, that choreography comes together. Exactly. At the end of the five days. Now this is going on for five days. At the end of the five days we have a dance. And we're going to, we call it the dance of the tides. And Jody is, I think she's a genius, genius choreographer. And the idea is to have the dance in some way reflect the move, the, the tides, the movement, this environment that we're in. And then each day that dance will build and we'll add to it and we'll refine it. And then at the end of the five days, we'll dance it. Awesome. Nice. And do, you, do they, is there an audience, or are they just dancing it to, to no one? Well, I think there'll be an audience. It'll be kind of minimum. It's not like we're going on stage in San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> and you never know with these workshops, you know, what kind of athletic ability you're dealing with with the people. And, and Jody is also a master at that. Of when she incorporated me into the dance, I said to her, Jody, listen, We've got here a group of 25-year-old professional dancers. We've got a 65-year-old man who's never danced professionally, or you know, I, I dance, you know, rock and roll and stuff, but I've never danced. You can't make me look clunky, or this thing is going to fall apart. And she said, "I'm aware of the problem." And it's amazing that she saw, she sees what I can do with my body and brings me just to the limit of clunkiness and then cuts me off and she's brilliant that way and so it's her job to make sure that the younger more athletic person and the less athletic maybe overweight person still get to participate and you know it's a polyoc institute so it's um, a group like they have two or three workshops going on at the same time. And there's our group of maybe 15 or 20, and then there's going to be other groups. So at the end of the, at the end of the five days, we're going to perform, you know, in front of another 20 or 40 or 50 people. Yeah. We're not going to go on the road with this. <laughs> what other uh, kind of adventures or expeditions have you done in the past? There's a lot of them. I've been a, I, I spent some time, at, quite a number of years as a big wall climber, rock climber, and my big climbs in there were um, done on Baffin Island. And, you know, we've done high performance climbs. We're invited to the American Alpine Club as the top five climbs of the year kind of thing and written up in 50 classic climbs and you know big big climbs in uh, I've also done some Himalayan climbing um, I bicycled across the Gobi Desert or cross sections of the Gobi Desert unsupported on a mountain bike um, I'm a I hate to use this word I'm a skier you know, what's going on in the ski world today? Again, now I turned 70 in two weeks. I can't compete with um, these 20-year-old kids who ski 80-degree spines and stuff like that. No, 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 no. That, I'm not even close to that. But I'm a decent skier, a decent big mountain skier. 
and I've skied in um, in Central Asia and in Alaska and British Columbia, where I am now. Uh, and then sea kayaking. Oh yeah, I forgot. Uh, um, I sea kayaked across the Pacific once uh, from Japan to Alaska. And that was a two-year project um, that went. Um, we followed the coast. We weren't out in the middle of the ocean, but it was a production sea kayak. No, uh, not a special, a special kayak. And wow. we left from Japan, and two years later we got to Alaska. Wow. That's right, written up in my book in the wake of the Joman. And and then during that trip, uh, in the second year, we. A strange set of circumstances, it's hard to know exactly what happened. But this storm came up suddenly, and we, for shelter, we came into shore in this small town on the coast called Gavimenka, the coast of northeast Siberia, roadless, totally, there's no roads to this, these places or anything. And we met this 96-year-old shaman, this Koryak shaman woman, and she said, um, she talked to us briefly, and she said, John, Misha, Misha was my Russian partner, come back. It will be good if you do. And we paddled away when the storm subsided, and Misha looked at me, and he said, John, we have to drop everything in our lives for as long as it takes to see what this woman has to tell us. And for the next five years, that was the central focus of our life, was this woman and this town. And um, that is written up in my third book, The Raven's Gift, because the raven is the messenger god of the Koryak people. And we went through a healing. She healed an old avalanche injury and a trying to understand that healing, which involved spiritual journeys to the other world, and I became a bad spiritual journeyer. She couldn't take me to the other world. And I felt a sense of failure. I, I'm here in Siberia. I have this one opportunity in my life, this old shaman and the old tradition, is saying, come with me to the other world, and I can't get there. I just can't make the journey. And then elect the hunter the next morning, and so I'm feeling this sense of failure. And the next morning, elect walks in, and he says, pack your things, we're going hunting. And we go out on the tundra. We go hunting, and nobody talks about my failure and feeling like this white man comes to this Koryak world, and he can't do it. And then we're coming back downriver, and in a speedboat, and Olek kills the motor, and we're spinning in the current. We have, we've been hunting and um, fishing, and we have a boat full of food. And I might not be good at traveling to the other world, but I'm a good hunter and fisherman, and I've made my contribution. And he looks at me, and Olek is this barrel guy. This, you know, he can pull a snow machine engine apart at 20 below in the middle of the night and rebuild it with no extra parts and get it going again kind of guy. And he says, John, you know why you failed to get to the other world with Mulanoff, the old woman? I 
I said, no, I just couldn't do it. You know, I tried my best. He says, well, you're a lousy traveler in the spirit world, like me. I'm a lousy traveler in the spirit world. But what you have to understand is that the spirit world and the real world are the same world. world. And that if you want to make your journey to the spirit world, you have to do it in the real world. And so you and Misha have to come back next spring and do what's essentially, although he didn't use this word, a walkabout. You have to go out on the tundra and be cold and tired and miserable and frostbitten and hungry and all that. And then, and the journey was, it wasn't just to go to the other world. It was to thank Kucha, the raven god. And you have to go out there. And if you go out there long enough and hard enough, Kucha will come and talk. I'm sure of it. And so we came the next year, and now we're out on the Siberian tundra, you know, in Siberia. In the wintertime, it was late winter, spring, not the dead of winter. And we go on all this journey, and all these hardships happen like we expected. And Kutka came to talk to us. That's the only explanation. And that was my transition, that moment when that raven came flying across the tundra, big wing beach, and came overhead and slowly spiraled until it was fingertip over my head and rocked its wings, and then flew up until it was almost invisible in the sky and then came back down again right over my head. And that was, if you talk about moments that you change, that was the moment where I changed from being a hardcore adventurer for the, you know, adventure of it and getting into the secondary journey. And in those earlier adventures, do you, in hindsight, look back and feel that you might have been searching for flow or did you do them for the adrenaline? Did you do them for, uh, to find that space? Did you do them to, um, that's just because what you did, where you lived, or you know, what were your kind of motivations for doing the range of adventures you have? Yeah, all of the above. <laughs> I really can't answer that question. That's just who I am. That's just where I was drawn. But I go back. I've written three books now, Cold Oceans in the Wake of the Gentleman and the Raven's Gift, and now the fourth, which is on its way. It's not out yet. And I go back to the first book, Cold Oceans, was my struggle between the white man in me, who was off for adventure and success and making a journey and making a name for myself and being a big shot, and finding flow. And that whole book was a struggle. And the book ends up by saying the moment you forget about success. You can't succeed if that's what you wanted, if that's the most important thing. And you can only succeed if you don't care about succeeding or you lose some of that. And of course it's a paradox because you still have to drive hard and everything. But the moment, and, and that's what that the whole book is about. The book is flow. 
but I just didn't use the right vocabulary. You know, I was still struggling with it. But I ended the book with visiting with the narwhals, being out in the kayak on the coast of Greenland, and the narwhals coming to visit. And I talk about, you know, I, I say, if I can remember this, in the olden days, the first people danced with the walrus on the bottom of the sea. And I talk about this relationship with the landscape that they had. And I then I talk about how I haven't lived this relationship. I've been a white man coming here trying to do something. And then the narwhals came to explain to me that I wasn't there to succeed. I was there to find magic, and they brought me the magic that I came to see. And that's how that book ends. So in that book, I was beginning that journey, but I didn't know it. Or I did know it, but it was, it, it was, you know, I'm a chemist. I grew up in suburban Connecticut. I went to high school at George W. Bush. I had a very traditional upbringing, scientific upbringing. And it took years and all these journeys and then Moulinot and so on um, to make this journey. So, yeah, in the beginning I was a jerk a lot. Maybe I'm still a jerk. Hopefully I'm less of a jerk than I was then, or a jerk less often, but I was really driven to be successful, and I failed a lot, and when I stopped caring that much about success is when success happened, and that's flow, that's 100% flow. Yeah, awesome, a great last, last, last sentence to kind of sum it up.